encourage you to take a copy of the Word of God and open it this morning to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Recently, NASA released the first images from the James Webb Telescope, a $10 million project that was launched. Um, the telescope is the most powerful optical observatory ever created, and the images have been very spectacular. Um, I remember years ago, this is how old I am, getting very dated, um, I used to have occasion about twice a year maybe to play a game or two of chess with a physicist that worked on the uh, Hubble uh, telescope. Um, he would come to see about his aunt that lived across the road from where we were, Gil and I, in uh, Culloden, Georgia, which is in middle Georgia. And uh, of course the Hubble is so outdated now, it's, you know, it's has been. And now we have the uh, James Webb Telescope. And according to the article I have in front of me, it says that already the telescope reveals new details about the origins of celestial bodies, galactic landscapes, and life itself. The technological uh, capabilities of the telescope will bring immeasurable knowledge and insight, especially about space exploration, potentially uh, habitable exoplanets, and mitigating climate change on Earth. Beyond that, the telescope represents the same fundamental desire that lies behind humanity's creation of robots, artificial intelligence, genetic modifications, and other advanced technology, and that is the desire to understand ourselves and where we come from. And it goes on, I'll not get into all of it here, but it says that uh, it can see galaxies uh, that are over 13 billion light years away, and that this means that it, this telescope sees so far into space that it can see into the past, and that's what it's seeing, and it's glimpsing uh, the beginning of everything. And then the article goes on with its countless glittering galaxies. The web images remind us of how massive space is and how statistically unlikely it is that Earth contains the only civilization in existence. And space indeed is vast and it's mostly empty. On the other hand, as far as we know, on the other hand, since we still have no evidence of life elsewhere, the, ebb, uh, the web images remind us of how miraculous life's emergence on earth is. And that, you know, I read that and I go, this is, that's, that's a good point. It's, it does. It reminds us of that. That we look at this immense, far-flung galaxies we can't even begin to imagine and of all of that, there's one that has life. How miraculous. But the conclusion is that, the, they say, is the desire to learn where we come from shed light on another important question, which I agree with. It's where we're going next. But there, this article's written, uh, if it's not from an atheistic position, at least it's written from a, an evolutionary non-deity 
has nothing to do with creation position. So when they say that it's miraculous, they don't conclude with glorifying God in that. Their, their conclusion from that is that um, we need to move into a new era of environmentalism. And I'm thinking, well, gee, I have no problem with being conscious of what God has blessed us with. We ought to be that, good stewards. But if you can look into all of that and you have no consciousness of the God who created it, then you're off on the wrong foot. And you're right in the sense that we have a desire to look not only to the back, to the past, but to the future. Not only where did we come from, but where are we going? Where are we headed ultimately? In Ephesians 1, Paul is not an astronomer. He's not a physicist. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the will of God. And he makes inspired declarations. Inspired declarations about the past. Peering back before the creation of the world, before the origin of celestial bodies, back before time or sound, he states that in the endless halls of eternity past, God chose to save a people, a people that were not even created didn't even exist from sins that have never been committed on a planet that has not even yet been formed from an enemy that did not at that time exist from a hell that has not yet been fashioned look at verses 4 and 5 Even as He, speaking of God the Father, chose us in Him, Him being Christ, before the foundation of the world. That's a phrase describing right on back. Before there was any space dust or any of that. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we, those that He chose, should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So before anything was, God chose and He predestined a people to the adoption to be his children. Now, the scope and cost of this divine plan is worth infinitely more than $10 million. And it reaches far, far beyond the light of distant stars. It costs the blood of his son, verse 7. And the scope of it is tremendous. It goes from what we can't imagine back there through time to what we cannot imagine in the future. So he looks back, and in looking back, he also brings us forward into eternity forward. And he makes another inspired declaration about history and time that it's in time that Christ redeems by His blood 
It's in time that we experience forgiveness. It's in time or history that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, it's in time that God lavishes His grace on us. And then He makes another inspired declaration about the future. That's the eternity in the future. And that's verse 10. And that is that that God has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him in heaven and things on earth. Now, at an appointed time in the future, there will be a unification of all things in Christ. Now, it's that we want to turn our attention to this morning. Um, Verse 10, but we want to start at the end of verse 8, what we might call verse 8b, and work our way to verse 10 uh, this morning is what I would like to do. Having said that, I ask if you would please bow with me for further word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for your word and we approach it now with... um, understanding in a very small way of the greatness of the passage before us and a great desire um, to discover some of its meaning before this congregation, realizing that that discovery must come through not just words of men's wisdom, but through the power of the presence and the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray You would bless the reading, the exhortation of Your Word, and send it forth clearly so that the people of God would be fed, nurtured, and that Christ would be exalted, the triune God would be exalted, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord in their eyes, their minds, and their hearts. And that any present that know not the Lord, that have not been called effectually, Lord, that you would be pleased to work in their lives, that you would take away the hard heart, the closed mind, the blinded eyes, and that you would give them sight, understanding, and life. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So as we look at verse 8, we have looked at the lavished grace, and then we look at the latter part of that verse, at the phrase, in all wisdom and insight. And this is an interesting phrase. And the question that arises with this phrase is, does that phrase go with the, with the verse, or yeah, with the, with the phrases and with the verse before about how God lavishes His grace, or does it go with the phrase after it that this is a result upon those that have grace lavished in their lives? Now, See if I can state it a little bit clearer. Um, when God saves a person, and it's by grace, does this phrase describe that God does that in all wisdom and insight, understanding? Or does this phrase describe the result in the life of the person who's been saved by grace? that once saved by grace, you are given wisdom and insight. That's, that's the question. And that's where, honestly, theologians totter on the beam. And as I asked my fellow pastors yesterday, I said, give me the answer. And they agreed this is one of the hardest passages in the book. Thank you all for giving me this. Um, It is difficult. And the answer I've come up with is yes. (laughs) It does. It describes both. And I think I'm safe there. 
not trying to not trying to straddle the fence, but I really do believe it just goes both ways. And I've tried to, I hope, be thorough, and I hope I'm not mad with much reading. Um, when God saves someone by His grace, we can say that certainly He does it in all wisdom, in all knowledge, in all understanding. God Himself is all wise. He is omniscient. And when He dispenses grace and salvation, He does so in all wisdom, in all knowledge, in all understanding. So certainly salvation is one of the great displays of the wisdom of God. And all the things we can look at in the world... We could say, when you, look at the, when you look at the saving grace of God, you would say, that is a wonderful display of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, of how He saves. Now, in a sermon preached on March 1733 by Jonathan Edwards, the title of the sermon was, The Wisdom of God Displayed in the Way of Salvation. Well, the title, he's given, he's given it to you there. God is showing you His wisdom by the way He saves. Now, his text is from Ephesians, and we're not there yet, but it's one of those passages in Ephesians, I'm just biting, chomping it a bit, waiting until we get there, whoever's preaching it. It's just a wonderful passage, and it's in chapter 3. I'll try not to get too much into that today. But in chapter 3, he's preaching on chapter 3, verse 10, and Edward says the Apostle is speaking in the context of the glorious doctrine of the redemption of sinners by Jesus Christ and how it was in a great measure kept hid in the past ages of the world. It was a mystery that before they did not understand. But now it was in a glorious manner brought to light. The Apostle in the text informs us what Christ had accomplished towards His church. The work of redemption had not only in a great measure unveiled the mystery to the church in this world, but God had more closely and fully opened it to the understanding even of the angels themselves. And that this was one end of God in it. And this is the phrase I was reading all that for. And that is to discover the glory of His wisdom to angels to the intent that now unto principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. You look at that passage in Ephesians 3.10 and it says that the church is displaying that wisdom of God to the principalities, to the angels of heaven. And the wisdom of God is being declared to them by the salvation of sinners. Now look at 1 Corinthians, another passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And you know this passage. But let's just take a moment to read it, then we'll, we'll go along. And this is one of those sermons, by the way. Go ahead and get your thinking cap out, put it on, and follow along because we're going down a path here. So just stay with me if you, if you would, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse uh, 21. <clears throat> For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified stumbling block to, the, to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so yes, in the saving grace of God and the salvation of the sinner, the wisdom of God is on display. It is the manifold wisdom of God. How God came up with the purpose and the plan of salvation and how God saves the sinner. What a 
wonderful declaration of the wisdom of God. It seems foolish to the world. They don't see it. But the sinner experiencing it goes, my gracious. What a wonderful, wonderful act of God's wisdom. And not only is it descriptive of how God saves, and going back to Ephesians 1, it is also descriptive of what happens when one is saved to the person who's saved. God lavishes His grace upon the elect and salvation and redemption and the result of that is the one that is redeemed Let's just read it. Uh, in that lavishing upon that one that is redeemed, part of that is the receiving of wisdom and insight. And John Stott puts it this way. God has done more than choose us in Christ in a past eternity and given us sonship now as a present possession. He has also made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of His will for the future. In our own confession of faith, chapter 10, the first paragraph on effectual call, it says this, Those whom God hath predestined unto life, He has pleased in His appointed and accepted time effectually to call by His Word and Spirit out of the state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. And so the result of salvation, of redemption, is that you are given wisdom and insight into understanding the things of God. In particular, as Paul points out here, the mystery of His will. According to the purpose which He set forth in Christ. Now, I had, gotten, I had in my notes here to go into the immediate context, which would be that statement. Also would be the prayer that begins in verse 15 of chapter 1 as evidence of what I'm speaking to you about. And you would say, well, why would the Apostle Paul pray that the Ephesians would be given wisdom and insight if you say that's a result of redemption? Well, you ever find prayers in the Bible that your faith might grow? Do you ever find prayers that, that you might grow in grace? Of course you do. Is that given to you? Yes. Well, I don't find that prayer unusual. That this is given to us. This is part of what we receive in salvation. And yet, Paul is praying that, okay, here it is now. We want you to grow in it. We want you to grasp it. We want you to understand it. And that's his prayer. And then there's the very context of Ephesians itself. And I don't know if this is where I want to do this or wait till later. I can't say another time because Pastor John will be picking up after this. He said, by the way, he'd straighten out what I messed up. So, I leave it to him to do that. Uh, but there's a very context of, of Ephesians itself uh, that really comes to play here. Well, let's go on to verse 9. I'll leave that alone for now. Let's go on to verse 9. So, we are given wisdom and insight for what? To what end? To make known to us the mystery of His will. Well, what does that mean? Is this mystery of His will. 
Well, the word mystery, at least in the ESV uh, rendition of Ephesians, the word mystery is used in chapter 1, verse 9, chapter 3, verse 3, verse 4, verse 6, verse 9, chapter 5, verse 32, and chapter 6, verse 19. So it's used seven times in Ephesians. Paul uses it, uh, the the counts vary, but somewhere around 20, 21, 22 times in his epistles, the word mystery. And it uses it, there's some variation in the use of it, but it's used to describe the thoughts, the plans, the purpose, the decree of God. And at the core of that is Christ. Now from Vine, I'll give you the definition from Vine's expository dictionary. Um, And it writes this, Mystery can be made known only by divine revelation and is made known in a manner and at a time appointed by God and to those only who are illumined by His Spirit In the ordinary sense, a mystery implies knowledge withheld. Its scriptural significance is truth revealed. So, when we read the word mystery in the Scriptures, New Testament, it's something that through the ages was not known, but now is known. It was something that wasn't clear that now is clear. And God's people have been given insight and knowledge of that mystery. That's what we're reading right here in Ephesians. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, for example... We read, this is how one should regard us. And he's speaking about apostles and and those who handle the Word of God, elders, pastors, etc. He said, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries, plural, the mysteries of God. Same word, same concept, same thought. Of the mysteries of God. And there it's more or less a general reference to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 1.9, where we just read, making known to us the mystery of His will, it's referring to God's ultimate purpose. It has an eschatological fulfillment. And if you read Colossians, which is of course the companion epistle with Ephesians, you find something very similar in Colossians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, where Paul will talk a lot about the mystery again, it's part of and it's, in, it's, it's including how the Gentiles are brought into the family of God and the wall between the Jew and the Gentile are torn down and there's one family of God. That's the way he uses it there. Especially in chapter 3. In chapter 5, verse 32, where we read about, in chapter 5 about how husbands are to love their wives even as Christ loved the church. And he gets to the end of that and he talks about the mystery. He says, I'm really talking to you about Christ and the church. That's the real point of Ephesians 5, that latter part, even though we have the analogy of husbands and wives, he says, I'm really speaking to you about that relationship, that union between Christ and the church. And that's the way the term is used there. And then in chapter 6, verse 19, I think it probably includes some elements of all the above, honestly. Again, it's sort of a gospel, all-inclusive gospel expression. Now, I realize I just trampled over some serious heavy-duty theology to get where I'm getting, so I know that, okay? 
So some of you young theologians, I realize that. But I want us to know and to realize, and I want us to get this, that saints are chosen, the redeemed, the sealed, the believers, by the grace of God, uh, we are given the capacity to comprehend the goal, the end, the eternal purpose of God for the cosmos. And I don't need a telescope looking into the depths, and I'm not against that, by the way, don't misunderstand me, but I don't need a telescope looking into the depths of the universe to try to figure out what the end is or where I'm going or the purpose of life. If you believe in the inspired Word of God, you just read it, or you just heard it read. It's right here. And he says, the apostle, by the authority of God, said, this is the mystery, and it's given to you to understand it. By God's grace, your eyes have been opened, and this is something that you have the privilege to understand. Not only understand it, but we're part of the purpose of God, part of the plan of God in this mystery. And, and we don't know it mystically. It's not something that filters down to us mystically. It's not something that the hair on the back of your neck stands up and all of a sudden go, woo, I got it. It's not, it doesn't come that way. It's not for a select few saints. It's not that, well, you can have it and you can't. It's for the saints of God. It's for all of those in Christ. God, by His grace and salvation, gives us a new heart, a new mind, a new will, and in that we are granted this understanding. A verse that come, came to my mind as I consider that was Matthew 11, verses 25 and following, where Jesus said, and this is right after He pronounces woes on several cities, and then He enters into prayer, so he's just condemned several cities. And then he's praised to the Father. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Sounds like 1 Corinthians that we read earlier. The world in their wisdom did not know. They cannot see. And reveal them. He said to little children, Except you be like a little child, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And then this wonderful, gracious invitation. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he just prayed, I thank you that you reveal it and you hide it. And that gets us to verse 10. So, he lavished grace upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to to His purpose, we are given the mystery of His will. This has been hidden. It's been known to us. It's the purpose of His will which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and things on earth. And this, I understand, is speaking about the culmination of God's eternal purpose. Now the word plan here means ordering, arranging, implementing, if you, if I would use this example, maybe a poor one, but I'll use it. Think of an architect's plan. An architect draws the plan. 
has the plan, and the plan is submitted way prior to construction of whatever the plans are about. And then the, the plans will then be carried out. Well, God has revealed His plan. We know it. Christ is implementing that plan. And we await the final consummation of that plan and moving in as it were. Then we have this term in verse 10, the fullness of time. It's a plan for the fullness of time. Well, that's a term that you've heard before from Paul. It's a term that you read in Galatians when Paul is talking about the first advent of Christ. The fullness of time, God sends His Son. Well, there's another advent, isn't there? It's the second advent. And the term used here in Ephesians 1.10 is talking about the second advent. The second coming of Christ. There is a purpose, there is a plan that will be the culmination when Christ returns. And this is the uniting of all things in Christ. And the word unite means to sum up. It's the same word. And I think it's the only place the other place is used actually in the, in the New Testament. And that's in Romans 13.9 where Paul is writing uh, about the summary of the law. The law of the New Testament would be summed up in these words, he says. That we are to love. Uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the summed up there is the same word we have right here. Well, other things here I have, but I, I want to go on. I want to move on. I want to come to the, what I'll call the application and uh, considerations here. And I want to start with, with the believers here today. I know I've tried to lay out some things for you just kind of in a technical way up to this point. And you may be listening to me and going, well, what, so what? So what? Okay. And I thought a lot about the so what, or I hope I thought some about the so what. And for the believer, we're thinking now about our spiritual blessings in Christ and the knowledge that we've been given, the understanding that you have, the privilege that you have. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter for a moment, chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. I want to read a couple of verses. I'll start in verse 10. Apostle Peter writes, concerning this salvation, this wonderful salvation that we've been talking about, the prophets who prophesied about the grace, this mystery that has been hidden, the prophets who prophesied about this grace, that was to be yours. And through Christ in the New Covenant era, searched and inquired carefully what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And we just refer to the glories in Ephesians 1. Those gifts that are ours, the glories that are ours. So the prophets, he said, that wrote about these things, Isaiah 53, Psalm 2, Psalm 23, Psalm 110, Psalm 2. Keep going, just go through them. Genesis 3.15. Take your favorite passage, basically, from the Old Testament, for they speak of Christ. And those who wrote of them, 
David wrote, Moses wrote, Isaiah wrote, Jeremiah wrote. And they wanted to know, well, they wrote to a historical people. Yes, that's true. But they understood that what they wrote was more than what they were simply writing about at that moment. It talked about somebody and something more and greater. And it says that they searched and inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, it was revealed to the prophets, that they were not serving themselves. This was not for them. This was not theirs. But you. Now Peter's writing to a people of his time. And I would say to those of the last, what's called the last days from the time of Christ's first coming till He's coming again is for us. In the things that you have, that you, uh, let me back up, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. You ever, I'm, I know you've heard that passage, but have you sat down and just meditated on that passage? That you know things and you have experienced things and glories are promised to you that the angels in the very presence of God, the seraphims that sing, holy, 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 don't know. And they will not experience. That is ours in Christ. For those of you who know the Lord Jesus Christ, that is yours. No wonder the angel said to John, don't worship me. In Revelation. Because the angel is going to be a servant of John's. As we said before, I don't, the idea of you know wanting to go to heaven and be an angel, my gracious, why in the world would one, would one want to do that? You're an heir of Christ if you're of Christ. And all that is Christ is yours. Why would you want to be a servant, an angel, when you belong to God? You are a child of God. And so the writing here is things that are ours in Christ. And that's what Paul's writing about in Ephesians 1. Calvin wrote, Without Christ, the whole world is a shapeless chaos and frightful confusion. And that describes the world, any world, <laughs> the world, at any time, I should say. But you think of the world after God created it, and it was just this, it was this chaos, and the Holy Spirit came, and He brought from that chaos and that darkness life and order. Well, that's, that's an unbeliever, but that's the world we live in. It's a world of chaos. Well, so that means to the believer that I should be obeying because I, among all people, in this world, acknowledge God as our rightful, my rightful, and you should be as your rightful sovereign, although the rest of the creation be in rebellion. If I have said I believe in Christ, I'm saying Christ is my Lord. And if I proclaim Him as my Lord, then I should be obedient to Him. And I should be faithful, faithfully proclaiming Him in the world around me. And then secondly, I would go to what I call the glorious gospel, the glorious hope. And believe me when I say this, I've thought about it but, but, and tried to think my way through this a little bit. I mean no, I mean no, uh, 
I mean no attack. I, know, I mean no ill will. Um, we have varying views on, diff on different things. Uh, I, I, I mean no uh, uh, attack on any position when I'm what I'm about to say when I when I talk about our glorious gospel and our glorious hope. But I but I've often referred to what I what I call a truncated gospel. And I've referred to it often when I've gone to a funeral and I hear what I call a truncated gospel. But not just there, I hear it other places. But it's a gospel that stops at death. And it's like there's nothing else. Uh, that's that's it, you know. Wow. And I go. That is that is not it. I, I almost drug out of the out of the hymn ashes today. The half has not yet been told for us to sing, because I thought that that might sum it up. Um, and that's what I that's what I think of when I think of a truncated gospel. It's a it's a gospel that's been locked off, and it's lost its fullness. And sometimes I, I think of that when I think of various millennial views. But in verse 10, he's talking about the uniting of all things in heaven and in earth. Now some have used this wrongly to try to prove universalism. I'm not spending time there. Some have used this verse to attack the church with walls. Say we should have no walls. I'm not going to spend time on that either. Um, some talk about this as the gathering of men and angels, and that may well be so. Things in heaven and things in earth. It's the gathering together of all things. It's the summing together in Christ of all things, including men and angels. Maybe so. But I, I think of a hymn. Let me find it. Uh, look, get your Trinity hymn out. My time's up, so I'll try to be quick. But look at him, two eighty-one. This is this is what I thought about as I looked at this verse and perused it. Thought about it. Him, two eighty-one in the Trinity. For all the saints, for all the saints who from their labors rest, to thee by faith before the world confessed. Thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Alleluia. Thou wast their rock, their fortress, and their might. Thou, Lord, their captain in the well-fought fight. Thou in the darkness drear, the one true light. Alleluia. O may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old, and win with them the victorious crown of gold. The golden evening brightness in the west, brightens in the west. Soon, soon to the faithful warriors come their rest. Sweet in the calm of paradise, the blessed. Now, verse 5, right below the, the lines there. But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. The King of glory passes on His way. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's fatherest coast, through gates of pearl streams in the countless hosts, singing to the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Alleluia, alleluia. Um, that, when, I'm, when I'm thinking of this passage, that in Him there is the fullness of all things to unite them, things of heaven and things of earth, this is the passage that comes to my mind. And what else I thought about is you. And others that I know. And sometimes we make small of what will happen in that day when Christ comes again. And there is the gathering together of His whole family that Paul will address in Ephesians 2 of heaven and earth. The one family, it's now the church militant, the church triumphant, but he talks about the one family in heaven and in earth. And I read this passage in Ephesians, that's what I think about. And sometimes we belittle the fact that I have brothers and sisters in Christ 
that I will one day reunion, will have reunion with. I have a brother I've never met. I look forward to meeting him. I have brethren whom I have known I look forward to being with and sisters. All things in heaven and in earth brought together in Christ. And my dear friends, that's not going to happen this side. That's going to happen when Christ comes and the last enemy is destroyed. Everything is put under His feet. That will be glory. And that's never ending. That's not a thousand years. That's not an indefinite number. That's, that's the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what I see verse 10 talking and addressing. And I had other matters I wanted to address, but um, I'll just simply say, if you don't know Christ, you're looking, you're looking at life through the web telescope. You may see some beautiful lights, and you may ask some important questions, and you may be about some noble quest. But you've got a wrong view, and you've got the wrong goals or goal. But there is a great Savior. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And to us as the church, we need to engage the world that we live in but we also need to remember we live in two spheres. There's the physical sphere and there's the spiritual sphere that Paul's going to address a lot in this book. And our battles is in the spiritual, is, is in the spiritual sphere and our victories will hopefully will be in both. But I pray that the Lord will Bless your heart. Expand your mind as you think about the knowledge the Lord has given you and what lies ahead for you in the fullness of time when Christ unites all things, things in heaven and things in earth. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word, for this portion of it. Pray that you will bless it to your people that they will be encouraged greatly by it, that they will meditate upon it, they can drink, drink from its streams and eat from its pastures and find comfort and food for their souls. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to hymn 442 as we stand together.